I think looking back when I started and it was like, there's a lot of rules. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't do this, do this, say this, don't say this, don't, you know, Mm -hmm. don't overshare, don't undershare, no crosstalk. It taught me how to interact with people again because I'd lost all those skills. You know, the only conversation I could have with you is if we were both drunk, you know, so so to sit in a room and have a serious conversation about something, it it was completely foreign. And that was a place where I learned the skills to be able to do that. I I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Hiya, Sam. Hey, Don. How are you? You've been traveling a bit. I've been driving across the land in a broke-down van. That sounds like it ought to be a song. Yeah, well, there is an old song that had that line in it that I love, but we didn't break down. Did you have a dog named Boo with you? We didn't have a dog. Me and you and a dog named Boo. (laughs) Don't start singing. (laughs) Bless your heart. (laughs) No, we went south and went to Charleston, Savannah, and St. Augustine. Before it got nasty hot down there. Before it got, God, the weather was just great the whole trip, and it was a fun time. Had a blast. I got to a meeting in St. Augustine, a great club there. Uh, That was fun. That's the only meeting I got to. The other way that I incorporated AA was through podcasts. I was getting a meeting in by listening to podcasts, not to our podcast, Sam. It's okay. I listen to our podcast after you've chided me so many times for not. Yeah, well, uh, but uh, what I needed to get some other input. Oh, so the voice in your head being your voice is probably not all that good. Probably not what I need. (laughs) Believe me. And I got lifted up. I listened to other people's stories and such, of course. You know how it works. I just had a great time. But it was interesting driving back as I felt like I was being bombarded by hectoring billboards and signs on the back of trucks threatening me about God. Mm, I know of what you speak. I've driven those roads. I kept thinking, this is exactly what turned me away from the whole idea, a kind of threat God, a kind of a smite God. Yeah. There was one truck that drove by, and on the back of it had this scowling, fierce face and a big finger saying, have you prayed? (laughs) I was like, well, I only said a line this morning. I asked God to keep me sober, but we were in a big hurry, and I, I, I guess I didn't. I was like feeling guilty. I was going, this is exactly the stuff that drove me away from the whole idea of God and and spirituality altogether until I came into AA and found that repent now is not AA's message. No. I mean, I respect everyone's religion, but the attack religion, uh, it, it turned me off. Well, and the difference that we've got in AA is that you can have your religion. I don't have to have it. Yeah. We each have our own relationship with a higher power as we understand it. Right. And my journey was dropping 
my old definition of what a higher power was and discovering something new by working the steps and talking with my sponsor and going to meetings and hearing other ways of thinking. And really, for me, it was more a case of acting my way into believing in a higher power because I didn't believe in it. I just did what I was told at the beginning. And lo and behold, I stayed sober. Yeah, you wind up getting your your own evidence. Your own evidence. I love that it's a spiritual program. It's not a religious program. Some people in AA are religious, and Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Because within AA, we each get to have the relationship and work within that relationship with a higher power in the way that works for us. I don't have to use your higher power, and I don't have to interact with my higher power the way you interact with yours. Right. And your belief is your belief. Yeah. And in fact, AA is not anti-religious either. (laughs) Exactly. Religion is an outside issue. Yeah. (laughs) That took me down a rabbit hole. I'm okay. (laughs) I'm glad you survived it. But you know, I did pray. (laughs) Dear God, please get me through here now. (laughs) Please help me pass this truck and save me from being angry. There you go. Now that's a good one for me to use. Save me from being angry. (laughs) Sam, who's our guest today? Don, today we're talking with Jeff C. from Cumberland, Maryland. We're recording this opening on April 27th. We talked with Jeff in February. Jeff is currently in hospice, and part of our conversation is about his end-of-life issues. It's a pretty heavy subject. However, there's also a lot of experience, strength, and hope in this special conversation. Yeah, you know, life is filled with all kinds of joy, but there are trials too. Through it all, we can stay sober with the program and the fellowship surrounding us. I think you'll hear that in our talk with Jeff. Indeed. Hey, Don, how can I support The Grapevine Podcast? Since The Grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazines, on our website, or even on our podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept contributions from AA members. What? If you want to support the podcast, visit aagrapevine.org and click on store. Hi, I am Jeff. I am an alcoholic and addict. I live in Cumberland, Maryland. I started my sobriety journey in 2007. I've been sober now for several years. Jeff, what was going on with you that gave you the idea that you needed to completely surrender and give up drinking? I didn't drink because I was interested in drinking. I drank because other people were interested in me drinking and I wanted to fit in. So it started back in high school. And it was like, I can be one of the cool kids. I don't like the taste. I don't like how I feel, but that doesn't matter as long as I get to be one of the cool kids. That obviously progressed over the years to it went from I'm doing this for you to I'm doing this because I can't stop. And my life started to get really messy. I have the misfortune of being high functioning. So I was able to keep my job. The misfortune of being high functioning. 
it was horrible because I definitely feel for people who lose everything and lose their jobs. But I spent a long time every day at work in terror of, are they able to tell? Can they smell it on me? I'm shaky today. Should I run off to the bathroom, you know, and, and have a drink? I just realized that that was so out of control and I was always scared. And while the drinking took care of a lot of other feelings that would come up, it didn't take care of the fear. You just took me back in time. I remember going to work one day after a heavy night out at the bar and a woman that I worked with commented just how bad I smelled of liquor. Mm. You know, I had showered and everything. It was coming through my pores. Yeah. And that was always my fear, you know, because of what I do, which is I was very involved in the government. I was just like, there's a lot that I'm risking every day. You know, when you're sitting there at your desk going... Oh God! <laughs> Just as suspicious as anything else I was doing. Yeah. I, at one time I had, I, I'm a decorative painter and do murals and things like that. I was at work and I was painting these really delicate, long stripes, pinstripes. The designer that I was working for, she said, Don, why is your hand shaking so much? Because I could get my hand would shake like crazy, but if I touched my little finger, then I could draw an incredibly straight line. I was really good at it, but uh, it didn't look like it was going to happen <laughs> as I was approaching the wall. I said, yeah, it's coffee. I think I had too much coffee this morning. <laughs> we have great excuses, don't we? <laughs> we really do. I was just thinking that, you know, when you said that, like, if I touched my little finger, all of those things that I did along the way to hide it, you know, to go, okay, if I do this, then they won't see this. If I do this, then they won't see that. And as you know, it just takes you over. You know, the only time that I wasn't drinking was when I was doing things that I have to apologize for drinking for. So what was the final straw? I think it was just taking a really hard look at my life. I didn't have one of those rock bottoms with work. It was just... I'm in a studio apartment every day unless I go to work and then I come home and I'm in this place and I live in this big city and I don't know anybody and I don't do anything except sit here and drink. Mm. And it just started to feel like the walls were closing in and I realized how miserable I was. So what did you do about it? I was really lucky in the way that we often are that life intervenes. I was talking to a friend of mine with the intention of telling him and he said, you know, I haven't told you something. I started going to 12-step meetings. I was just like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> and that made it so much easier because I didn't have to have the uncomfortable conversation of will I be judged? Mm. You know, because I knew that I wouldn't be. So I asked a bunch of questions and asked if I could join him in a meeting and, and things took off from there. <sighs> That's one of those fantastic examples of why it's so important for us to be open about our recovery in our community and around our friends and family and yeah. such, because it provides that opening for someone else to say, hey, can we talk about this? Yeah. You know, early on in the program, I lived, I'm going to be completely anonymous. When stuff like when I get stressed out at work and I'd be like, okay, I really need some help right now. I couldn't ever say what I really needed help with. So I just started talking. And the next thing I know, the company they work for was instrumental in bringing the Affordable Care Act online. So we had to train 3,000 people in like two and a half months. So we had like classes of 200 going through. And my boss came to me and said, our insurer is not going to be able to do drug and alcohol training. Will you be willing to do it? I'm like, sure. You know, I've got the background. We don't go into a lot of medical detail. 
And he said, I'm going to ask something and you can say no. I would like you to tell your story because I need them to understand that alcoholics are not homeless people that live under bridges. It's a nice little old lady who they sit next to who slips off to the bathroom five times a day. You know, it's the person in the warehouse who you always catch sleeping. So I trained 2000 people and I opened up the meeting saying, today we're going to talk about drug and alcohol awareness. My name is Jeff and I'm an alcoholic. It was incredibly liberating. It was incredibly helpful. I think it really brought it home. And I'm glad I did it. There was a cost because, you know, people are like, wow, you're so brave. I'm like, I'm not brave. This is not brave. What was hard was on breaks and lunches, people would come to me. My dad's an alcoholic. He was driving drunk and he killed someone and he's in prison. My son is an addict and I don't know what to do. You know, and people would share their stories and it was hard to hear. You really realize how prevalent it is. Mm-hmm. And people at that point, they, what they really want is advice. And I always struggled, like, what do I really say here? You know, the only time I ever really got to say anything useful, a woman came and said, I don't know what to do. My son's an alcoholic. He disappears for weeks on end. He comes home. He's drunk. He passes out. He gets up. He eats everything in the house. He steals from me and he's gone again. And I'm like, I'm not a parent. I can't tell you what to do. I can tell you what my mom said. Not in my house. That's all we've got is our experience. Yeah. And I told her that. And she came in two days later and said, I sat my son down and said, you have two choices. You can move out or you can go to rehab. Those are your only choices. And the kid went to rehab. It's just as you said, if nobody ever has these conversations, then nobody gets help. Yeah. Well, and the incredible part of it is that some unknown person owning their their alcoholism and showing their recovery can be inspiring and can be an opening. But when a known person does it, it's so much stronger. The closeness makes it so much more real and accessible. Yes, absolutely. It creates a sense of safety. You know, I know that people who came to me who didn't know me that well, well, I was a member of the management team. There was still risk for them. But they felt safe because I had shared authentically. And I think for some people, it was just being able to say it to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about the steps and maybe some roadblocks that you had to bust through or jump over or leap? Yes. The first expectation that I had to work through was this wasn't going to be a, I can get these done by next week. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was like. There's only 12 of them. I'll just read them and I'll I'll write something down about what it means to me and I'll give it back to my sponsor. I'm going to (laughs) knock this out and I'm going to get a (laughs) hundred. That was the other thing. Being new in recovery, my perfectionism kicked in and it's like, oh my God, I have to go to X number of meetings a week. And if I don't go to that, I've got to do this. And if I, there were all these new rules that I set up. And I think for a while that helped keep me safe, but after a while it was strangling me. So then I got into the steps and found out how hard it is. (laughs) Then I didn't want to do it. So I went through a period of, I don't need those. I understand the general tenets. You know, why would I need to do that step? Okay. What was the step? I had a hard time with four. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I want to ask, you said how hard they were, but were they really hard or was it that you were uncomfortable doing it? I think it's more that I was uncomfortable. Step four was also hard because by the time I got there and I was really trying to work the steps, I showed up to my sponsors for coffee, you know, with like, 
here are volumes one through 10 of, of my defects. Um, I have the other six that I'm still working on. And he just looked at me because I, I, I did. I had like 20 pages in my hand. He's like, we're going to make this simple. You're going to go home and you're going to narrow this down to two pages. Ooh. And it was just like, but I did all this work. But I'm complex. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm very complex. Plus, there's the indexing and the sub-indexing. <laughs> <laughs> that was misery because everything I looked at, I either was like, I'm glossing over that and I shouldn't be. Or that's really difficult, so I'll gloss over that. And it took two or three iterations to, to get through it. But you did it. But I did it. I had a really good sponsor who loved me a lot. A lot of tough love. My history was always, I'd get a bunch of clean time, and then I would flip out and go out and drink, and then come back the next day, you know, repent. And, oh my God, why did I do that? And after four or five of those, he was kind of like, do we see a pattern here? <laughs> I called him once they'd been missing for like two weeks and you know, I'm going 90 miles an hour. He's like, you know, Jeff, you have to be in a program to have a sponsor. And he hung up. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm going to die. Um, and I called him back the next day. It was having people like that to say, you're not nearly as good as, or as bad as you want to think you are. Yeah. I want to, uh, to note something and you've used the term clean time several times. Yes. That's because drugs are part of your story as well. Yes. That's not something that is unique to so many of us these days now. It's not the focus of a conversation in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it is the experience of so many of us. And I don't want to feel like we're trying to hide that that was part of your experience. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it started out the same way. I wasn't interested in drugs, but if you were interested in me doing drugs, I was interested in doing it. You know, for a long time, that provided that seesaw of I'm drinking, but I'm not using, so I'm okay. I'm using, but I'm not drinking, so I'm okay. Play one against the other. Yeah. You know, eventually I realized, wow, I feel like crap either way. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of my feelings. I'm trying to get out of my anxiety. And so I've got to use something to get out of it. It's all the same. Right. So you found sobriety. You you got yes. you, you worked the program. You got the results of working the program. Yes. And what happened to your life? Life got tremendously better. I went from being that recluse in my apartment. I lived right across the street from National Zoo. I had lived there for three years and never walked across the street. So I volunteered for a little project with lions where I was doing behavior watch. And essentially, it's really boring. You have a clipboard and a timer, and every four minutes, you're like, Lion number two is in zone three and is asleep. Well, they're lions. You can spend the entire day going, lion number two is in zone three and asleep. <laughs> so it was boring and a little tedious, but I liked doing it. And I always showed up for my shifts. One of the keepers came to me and said, you know, both of the females are pregnant. We're going to go from three lions to a number of lions. And so I became a keeper aide um, and I helped raise seven lions because I was at the Smithsonian that opened the door because once you're in, you're kind of like family and they have a lot of opportunities where they'll say, if you'll pay your way here, we will put you up and feed you and you can work. And that's what I did for vacations. So I spent 10 days in the rainforest in Panama helping study frog species. I spent eight days on a sailboat in British Columbia studying the Kermode bear. 
help study bull sharks um, in Costa Rica while in the water with bull sharks. Wow. <laughs> do you have all of your limbs? I do. Um, <laughs> I, I did get bit once. Did you? Yes. We were doing a bait ball to attract sharks, and they were all hitting the bait ball. And I tend to wear a nylon shirt when I dive because I'm really sensitive to jellyfish tentacles, which, by the way, break off. Uh-huh. They don't die. They just float around the sea waiting for you to swim into them. I had that on and a piece of fish stuck to my shirt. And this little shark, probably about a foot long, swam up to grab it. He didn't mean to bite me, but he got me. Oh, but he didn't mean to. Oh, you little baby shark. <laughs> yes. So we get up on the boat. There's this tiny pin drop of blood. Ah, but you get to claim it. <laughs> right. Um, now, the next day, there was a bruise the size of a dinner plate. Oh, really? Wow. Because they have a really strong bite ratio. But uh, yeah, I totally claimed. <laughs> As you adjust your collar. Yeah. <laughs> You're describing a magical life. Yeah. Based on my experience, I had some really cool things happen in, in my early sobriety where I got to travel the world that I know would not have happened at all if I were still drinking and, and such. Yes. I never would have pursued any of those things if it hadn't been for the program. It wasn't just drinking. It was going to meetings and having a sponsor who's like, what are you doing for fun this weekend? I'm like, well, I'm going to the Friday night meeting and then I'm going to go to the Saturday afternoon meeting. And then we're doing the meeting before the meeting, before Saturday night. He's like, what are you doing for fun? And I just stared at it. Like, I, I don't know how to process that question. And so he said, why don't you look around? I want you to find something to do with some of your time that's not sitting in a meeting. And so that's how I started volunteering at the zoo. That is fantastic. Wow. It, my sobriety led me to saying yes to opportunities that were available to me. Yes. Yep. It, it let me travel. You know, I suddenly realized what I do, I can do for almost anywhere. So I had a really incredible boss and I could call and say, I'm bored. So I'm going to take the train to New Orleans and I'm going to work from a and b for a week. And she's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Have you experienced challenges in your recovery? Yes, there's life challenges. And, you know, I could just rack my brain and go, well, this one, but it kind of turns into in 1982, someone stole by. <laughs> the really big challenge is the pandemic. Okay. Um, I had just moved to Cumberland, Maryland, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it hit really hard. Moving to a new city where you don't really know a lot of people in a pandemic, not a great idea. During that time, my partner at the time, Rob, was working in Africa, working with gorillas, and he caught COVID. And because he was in a remote area of Rwanda, it turned into pneumonia and he died. Aww. And that was that was big. And then the drinking and the drugs were heavy when I was using and it took a toll and it affected my kidneys. In December of 2021, my kidneys failed. I developed pneumonia. <clears throat> they rushed me to the hospital. My doctor told me at six o'clock in the morning, your kidneys have failed. We are scheduling you for surgery at eight to put, there's a catheter that runs from up here in my neck down into my heart. They did that at eight. At one that afternoon, I was back downstairs on dialysis for the first time. And I've been on dialysis since. It meant that I had to give up my job. For me, dialysis is only about 70% effective. And I have a side effect called dialysis exhaustion. So on days that I have dialysis, I go home and I go to bed. And I'm in bed until the next day. And how often is the dialysis? Three times a week. Oh, okay. So, 
you know, there's a the sense of I'm off, then I'm on dialysis, and then I'm resting the next day, and then I'm on dialysis, and I'm resting the next day. So six days a week, I couldn't function. That led me to making a decision a few months ago that on April 22nd, I will have my last dialysis session. I should be fine for a week or two. And then after that, I'll be entering hospice. That's not a light decision, is it? No, it's it's not. And it's weird decision. The things that I thought would be big, like, will I remember my family? Will I have many memories at all? What's going to happen? What about this? Those are not the questions that come up. The question that comes up is being at the grocery store and going, is it worth saving a dollar to buy the large container of mustard knowing I'll only use it two or three times? Yeah. Because yeah. you know, those are the things that drive it home. So it wasn't a light decision, especially from the aspect of, from a medical perspective, like from my nephrologist's perspective, yeah. he's like, Jeff, you could live another 15 years on dialysis. I'm like, I don't think you understand when you say that how much it makes me want to stop. <laughs> I'm not happy. I don't have the life I want to lead. Um, I don't have the life I had before. And while I tried to find other things to do to fill that gap, it's been a case of, if I always feel like crap, why would I keep doing this? Jeff, how has your recovery been part of this decision and your experience after having made the decision? Where it's really come up has been in the last few weeks because, you know, we're getting to the point where it's final details that have to be ironed out. And, and things that I don't think of, like a friend of mine's like, are you going to be cremated? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, you can't just leave the body there for a week and go, not sure. <laughs> um, he's like, you need to make some decisions. And part of those, you know, I'm looking at going into a new insurance year. I know that I have my deductibles and my max amount of pocket. And I'm like, what's going to happen to my bills? I actually called a friend of mine who's in recovery the other day. And I'm like, this is driving me crazy. Having worked so hard to clean up the wreckage of my past, it absolutely stresses me out to think that I would be creating more wreckage by dying and not being able to pay a bill. He's like, there's only so much you can do. He's like, some of this is you've just got to act in good faith. I'm adjusting to that. I know he's right. You know, and I knew where my recovery kicked in was I'm stuck in my head. I'm turning this over and over. It's time to ask somebody else in recovery what they think. Yeah. That's helped a lot. Oddly, I thought that during this period, and it could still change, that I'd feel a lot more spiritual. Like I'd like really be investing in the spiritual aspect of the program. And I haven't been. I'm feeling very pragmatic lately. It's like, what do I know? It's like, I feel like I need to stick to things that I know. And it's like, I know that energy does not dissipate. It just changes form. That's pure science. This energy will change form. I don't know what that means. It's been comforting to be like, okay, I'll go on in some way. You know, I'm starting to ask those questions. The other is, as much as I've eschewed day count over the years, I have to really work hard right now not to have a day count. Because every day I look at the calendar and I'm like, Starting this week, there's two months left. Yeah. You know, like I can't focus on that. Um, so what's today hold? One day at a time. Exactly. And it'll be one day at a time right up until the last day. 
of the things I'm grateful for and hopeful for is I remember all of the times when I was drinking and using that I should have died or could have died and didn't care. And now I'm dying and I care. The one thing that sustains me in some of that is that it's my goal to die sober. Why? Why is that important? Because it's going to suck <laughs> and because it's going to be amazing. And I learned a long time ago that I don't get the option to sort through the emotions and just pick and choose the ones I want. I'm opening the door for other people to have conversations about this. So we're talking about dying. It was crazy because it started out so serious. And then somebody's like, well, I know you're not crazy about your landlord. Just leave everything in the refrigerator. <laughs> a huge block of Velveeta cheese. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to serve up a big helping of warm refrigerator surprise. <laughs> and people are like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And laughing and being able to do that. The people that I know in recovery, we've talked about this so many times, our experience as, as drunks and addicts. And, you know, we laugh at the stuff that you just shouldn't laugh at. Well, yep. I think that that's probably a big part of what's going on right now with your experience. I think that's true. Part of my background is medical. I was in the medical field for a long time, and that's very much a part of that field. Now going into this, everybody starts walking on eggshells when they hear the news. And I'm like, we're not going to play this. You know, I don't need that. I don't need you to be like, how are you? You know, my brother will call me once a week right now and I'll pick up the phone and be like, knock, knock. I'm like, who's there? And he's like, just checking. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, John. <laughs> so, yeah, we laugh at the things that other people are appalled by sometimes. And it's like, probably because this isn't the worst thing that's ever going to have happened to me. <laughs> I think a huge part of it is you're not alone in all of this too. You have genuine connection. You know, for me, that's something that I craved prior to getting sober. And I had some relationships that had that, but not a lot. And today it's a common thing in the people that are within my sphere. And that's that real connection. You're nodding your head. I'm, I'm getting that that's your experience too. Absolutely. You know, I, I just remember in early recovery, all the times that somebody would say, who is your group of people who you can call at three o'clock in the morning? And I didn't have that. And I didn't have it for years in recovery because I didn't want to be the person who called somebody. I wanted to be the person that someone called. Well, you know, so it was very yeah. much still about my addiction of love me. <laughs> yeah. And and learning to be able to do it without shame. You know, I think that's probably going to be one of the last big lessons of how to ask for help without shame. You're learning still. Yes. Jeff, thank you. I love you. I admire you. I respect you. And I am so happy that I get to know you. Thank you. I love you too. Thanks, Jeff. December is a great time of year to reach out to alcoholics and help others. What are the ways you stay sane and grateful during the holidays and New Year's? How do you navigate holiday parties and family gatherings? Share your best sober holiday stories at aagrapevine.org share. Stories are due by June 15, 2023.
A drunk named Joe woke up with a terrible hangover after a long night. He put his shoes on. His wife noticed that his left shoe was on his right foot. Joe, your shoes are on the wrong feet. Mm, no, no, honey. These are my feet. <laughs> it's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.